Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and in this first part of a two-part podcast for October, my guest is acclaimed historian, biographer and memoirist Tim Geel. His new book, Explorers of the Nile, The Triumph and Tragedy of a Great Victorian Adventure, reflects Tim's fascination with the great Victorian explorers of Africa that dates back over four decades. In 1973, he published a biography of David Livingstone, which drew on access to a host of new information to present a new, unsentimental portrait of the man, which was highly praised for its historical and political sophistication. It has remained in print continuously to this day. More recently, in 2007, he wrote a life of Stanley, subtitled The Impossible Life of Africa's Greatest Explorer, which garnered accolades, including the Sunday Times Biography of the Year. That newspaper called the book An Ardent, Intricate Defence of a Man History Has Damned. In spite of these earlier successes, Tim, like his intrepid subjects, has clearly been drawn back to Africa yet again, this time to tell the stories of five British explorers of the mid-Victorian era, who showed indefatigable courage and determination in their quest to find the source of the White Nile. Just why this quest exerted such fascination for Burton, Speak, Baker, Livingston and Stanley, you will hear in the interview. Tim also reflects on why it exercised the Victorian imagination more generally, and on the terrible privations the explorers had to endure in order to pursue their quest. I began, though, by remarking that ever since the Victorian era, people have invested in the reputations of these men, lionising them, or later challenging their claims to greatness and seeing them as the first step on the road to colonialism. I think in a way explorers are owned by their nation too, even perhaps owned by their race. So you may have a, a view of, of how you think these explorers were because of the political view that you take of the African colonial era. If you think that it was the beginning of all things bad and that the single most important thing about the legacy of colonialism was in fact its racism, the way that it demoralised Africans, the way that it perhaps corrupted them in some ways, and the way that it split up their countries in a way that was going to lead to war. And you would think mainly in terms of the disadvantages of it. But there would be a parallel group of people who would say that this had to happen, that the slave trade was there, that the gun frontier was advancing, that imagine if everything had been like Sudan and Darfur there, and imagine if white people had never gone there, what the hell would have happened? And they had to enter the modern world. And maybe colonialism was the way it was going to happen. Maybe there was no other way. So these arguments very often determine how people want to see the explorers themselves. They would say, since it all led to such a rotten outcome, look at, you know, the dictators, look at, you know, superpower sponsorship of dictators and so on, um, look at the international trade system which is so unfair and everything. Well, you know, that all stemmed originally. It's a seamless garment. It comes from the explorers onwards. But I would simply say that the explorers were in a different age. The explorers went years before diamonds and gold, before any minerals were thought of really as being the reason to go there. And they were fundamentally adventurers with a sort of Nietzschean twist you know, they were the bungee jumpers par excellence. You know, they wanted their thrill was facing death. It was actually living on the razor's edge for months. And they were most remarkable people. So it would, in my view, be grossly unfair. They had gone for adventure. They hadn't gone primarily to begin colonialism. Colonialism starts with people like Livingston failing as missionaries. 
and thinking, gosh, how can we make converts? And the answer is to change their way of life entirely. And how do we do that? We show them a steamship, we show them a factory, we show them a town. And then they're going to believe that we're something special. But we arrive with a wagon or something, you know, well, that's a bit special, but not really special enough to change our way of life and get rid of all our wives and go to church. You know, why should we? I mean, it would be mad. So Livingston came to that conclusion and he put this together with the whole idea that commerce and Christianity was the answer because the commerce would mean that when traders came, the Africans currently selling people to the Arab slave traders would in fact not do that. They would sell their natural produce, their ivory, their this, their gums, their this, their that, their beeswax and so on to the visitors instead of selling people. And they could get all the Western factory goods they wanted buckets, the mirrors, the cloth, the everything that they coveted, the trade beads. So that was really basically the idea. It was a sort of humanitarian idea in, in shape with Livingston. But obviously there were other people like Rhodes and others who came along, or Leopold, who had very exploitative ideas. Now I don't think you can really say that was the fault of the original people, who at huge danger to their lives performed this extraordinary task of actually opening up the continent and mapping it. People would say, well, look, you know, they didn't really discover anything at all. You know, the Africans knew about it all generations ago. Of course they did. That's absolutely true. They didn't discover anything at all because other human eyes had seen it. But on the other hand, the other human eyes that had seen it didn't know how it related to other lakes in the river system, didn't know where the river went, and in fairness to them, didn't want to, didn't see the point. I mean, you know, Livingston was told when he was saying all about, you know, that river that river, you know, he was asking endless questions about the river, and an old chief turned to him and said, it's only water. It's only water. And of course, you know, on one level that's absolutely true. But to the explorers, it was the greatest geographical mystery. Yeah, Tim, explain to me why. Why was the finding the source of the White Nile such a, a fascinating subject for these, um, these mid-Victorians? I think you would need to see the map of the world at that date in order to know the answer to that. There it was the centre of Africa, had nothing on it. Rivers disappeared in a sort of small dribble of dots, and there was nothing there. And you say, well, that's a bit peculiar. You know, this is the age of the galvanic battery and the telegraph and the steam engine, and these guys have not managed to get into Africa. But, you know, I have to tell you that all the rivers are blocked with sandbanks and with cataracts, and there's malaria, and an absolute raft of other things you can get. There's the difficulty of travelling in the rainy season, there's the difficulty of actually raising the money to get an expedition and buying all the necessary trade goods to pay the porters and everything else. And it's just a hugely difficult business to get in there, and it is the difficulty that is the challenge. A task which seems impossible. I mean, if you wanted to rebuke some dreamer, there's a, there was a phrase that the, that, that, the, um, that the Romans had, which is rather a good one. Facilius sit nili caput invenieri. It would be easier to find the source of the Nile. So when anybody sort of suggested something absolutely, you know, ambitious and all the rest of it, people would say it'd be easy to find the source of the Nile, you know, to sort of really put them in their place. Um, and that, that, there was a phrase that, that endured, not just in Roman times, but the, the Victorians, yes, the classically educated Victorians would yeah, still use still it. say that, absolutely. And so, you know, you've got a mystery which is thousands of years old. I mean, when... 
Alexander, for example, was shown the Temple of Ammon in Luxor, the first question he asked is said to have been, what causes the Nile to rise? I mean, here was this river that really passes through one of the driest deserts in the world. For 1,500 miles, it's actually without being re refurbished by a single tributary, which is incredible if you think about it. I mean, the sheer volume of water that's needed, coming from Christ knows where, and what if it stopped? You know, I mean, it's a bit mysterious, isn't it? And, and the entire country of Egypt totally depends on it. If it didn't come, if the, if the, the summer sort of flood didn't come and the, and, the, and, the, and the plains of southern Egypt weren't, of northern Egypt rather, weren't um, inundated, it would be the end of the country. So there was obviously great interest, and people did struggle up it and tried to. There's Nero sent two centurions and 200 men to try to do it, and they reached the Sud, which is an enormous swamp south of Khartoum, and they couldn't get through it. And indeed, people couldn't get through it in boats until the middle of the Victorian period. And even then, efforts to get further upstream were vitiated, partly by some very ferocious people who actually quite rightly had been driven almost insane by slave raids, were not letting anybody go through their territory. And they killed people, and people died of malaria and all these illnesses. And basically it was mainly French and Portuguese and Maltese explorers at this particular day. The Brits weren't really involved. And one of them, an Italian, who was also um, a woodcarver and um, a writer of operas and a great romantic, um, he got within 60 miles of Lake Albert, um, but he perished, mainly malaria. But also, he was quite elderly, he was in his 60s, which is a hell of an age to be, that, that the date we're talking about. And he, he said something, you know, so ends the dreams of all my life, you know. I mean, it was really a dream to, to get near, um, or actually get to the source of the Nile. I wanted to ask you about the role of the Royal Geographical Society in London in facilitating these expeditions. I mean, am I right in thinking of them anachronistically as a kind of Victorian NASA into space exploration? I, I think that's a fair enough, I think it's a fair enough way of looking at it. The people who started it off were naval officers. They had quite a serious intention, you know, that it would sponsor exploration in parts of the world that hadn't been explored. And this was quite important for an, a maritime nation to actually partly get the, get the world properly mapped in every way, not just in uh, rivers and, and coastlines, but also in interiors. It came about out of that, really, but then it became a much more popular organisation with ladies invited to big meetings, and the whole idea was to try to get the most interesting travellers um, to come and address them. And I suppose the first big, huge success that Sir Roderick Murchison, who was previously a, a, a geologist and before that, a country gentleman, terrifically well connected with all the knobbish people and with the politicians and so on, and a real expert in jobbery, it was described as. He commissioned Livingstone to cross Africa for the first time and sponsored him. And Livingstone really came up with the goods. He became the first white person ever to travel across Africa from shore to shore. And this was a huge event. I mean, I think it's difficult for us to realise because nobody actually knew that Africa wasn't just like the Sahara in the interior, you know, right in the middle. I mean, I think the Portuguese knew, but they kept quiet about it. And the Arabs knew, and they kept quiet about it. But in Europe, there was a complete ignorance. So when he came back and talked all about this incredibly big river that flowed right through the centre and the Victoria Falls and everything like that, I mean, it was huge news 
just so extraordinary that there could be anywhere on Earth a waterfall as big as this. A river with a small island in it, you know, or islands in it, you know, right in the heart of Africa. Now, I suppose at the heart of your book are two men, Richard Burton and, and John Speak. Mm. And it's very interesting to contrast their posthumous fates, or indeed their, their, their fame during their own lives. And I think one of the most interesting things is the way that you really rehabilitate the fortunes of, of Speak at the expense of Burton. I wonder if you could say a little bit about the relationship between these two men and, and how that came to this sort of conflict of reputations. Burton was a very ambitious and clever person who had very little money, had been humiliated in various ways in not being able to court the women he wanted to court because of his lack of funds and connections. He felt, actually, although he cast himself as ruffian dick, petrol maverick, and interesting sort of man of disguises and spying and study of sex and everything else, he was actually, he, he, he was sorry that he had not been sent to Eton, so he would have been better connected and better able to connect with Britain and actually make a career of some kind in Britain, but he felt too much of an outsider. And so in a way, his, his role as he saw it in life was partly cast upon him. He felt that when he met Speak, that Speak was somebody who would admire him naturally. He was a man who'd written a, a famous book about going on the Hajj to Mecca in disguise. You know, that would either lead to a beheading or a knife in the back, or that was the impression he gave. And he may have been right. And here was this younger man, six years younger, who was, a, a, like him, an Indian army officer. And he wanted Speak to admire him, and Speak was quiet and diffident and seemed in every way the right person. But gradually, as time passed, Burton started to realise that Speak actually had a kind of steeliness. And he had a sort of kind of self-importance and self-regard, which Burton said was so carefully concealed as even his intimates were scarcely aware of its existence. But he became more and more aware of this. There's quality in Speak. That Speak, you couldn't humiliate him or do things without him resenting it, but possibly not showing it. But Burton was never prepared to let Speak be his superior in anything. Although Speak, for example, did all the map making and measurements of this kind, which is so important for exploration, in fact, absolutely essential. And Burton was only really doing ethnography. I say only doing. It is obviously very interesting to write down what tribal peoples are doing along the route and what their culture is and so on. But you come back from an exhibition like that without a map, and that's really serious, and yet Speak was making all of them. Speak, for example, had actually gone across Lake Tanganyika when Burton had been too ill. Burton had been sort of lazing and smoking on his back. Well, poor old Speak had been trying to hire a dow to get up to the northern part of the lake, which was essential to see whether the river flowed out and then went on to become the Nile. And he was sent, he, he went to Lake Victoria and discovered it, yet Burton didn't give him the credit for it. He secretly wrote to the Royal Geographical Society saying he believed it probably was the source or at least the feeder of the main branch of the source or whatever but he never said this again ever ever to anybody and he flatly denied that Speak had found it Speak offered him the chance to go with him he could have been carried, he couldn't walk he could have been carried just as he was carried for 1100 miles but he, he turned it down, he, he wouldn't go and so when Speak went back 
Burton was too ill to come immediately. Speak was invited to the Royal Geographical Society. He didn't basically run ahead, and it's almost certain he didn't make a promise. I mean, I look at these things. Burton said he promised not to go without him, Burton, and not, because Speak then went back on a new expedition, which became very successful, the new expedition. Burton claimed that, you know, he'd been cut out, that he, he would have gone. But there are so many things wrong with this, and yet so many Burton biographers have just taken it for granted that it was true. And this, this has been sort of a pivotal moment, hasn't yes. it, in the denigration of Speak? This, yes. The, you know, he accusation he wasn't a man of his word. He was a cad. He was, he was a liar, a cad, and he took advantage of Burton. He went on his expedition, he was the, the junior officer, and then he stabbed his, his boss in the back. And Burton apparently wrote the words, you know, um, don't you worry, Jack, you know, don't, don't you worry, Dick, I'll, 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 these are words quoted from speak, you, you just, um, uh, I'll keep my word and I'll, uh, you know, I, I won't go to the society until you come back and all that stuff. But in fact, these were written many years later. Quite impossible that they should have been remembered. And they made their first appearance. They don't exist in a manuscript of any kind. They made their first appearance in print in 1893. And Dorothy, the editor of, um, you know, The Life of Richard Burton, basically very often invented things. And the, the, the book is absolutely full of inventions, which again, you know, are rather denied by Burton's lovers, of whom there have been so many. Because he is attractive in a way. He, he was very naughty. He wrote very sardonic and funny letters. But up to a point, can one really necessarily say that's such a great thing? And you made some very interesting discoveries when you looked at the, um, the, the corrected proofs of um, Speak's journals as they were being prepared for publication, which really kind of round out and correct a lot of the misapprehensions about his character, don't they? Mm. Well, I mean, very, the first one was, you know, to get people to understand the African. He said, you know, that they are living in the condition perhaps that our ancestors lived in, in a more natural state of society in many ways than our own, before, in fact, civilization subverted it. And the very sort of language appalled his publisher, who thought, gosh, I think he, he ought to put in something about Christianity at this point and none of this appreciation. And speak, of course, all his entire time there, was full of interesting occasions. He was, for example, asked for sexual advice by both by the Kabaka, the king, and also by the king's mother. So he was sort of trying to regulate her periods better and telling her that she needed, really, basically another husband in order to stop dreaming about the previous one in the way she was dreaming about him, because he'd died, and she basically wanted a husband still. And he gave her good advice. And then he gave the Kabaka very good advice. The Kabaka was really worried about not having as many children as he ought to be. But since he had a couple of hundred wives, he was clearly not doing things right. He ought perhaps speak felt that he should actually not be having intercourse so often. That the main thing which was cut out was the fact that Speak had fallen in love. He'd fallen in love with an eighteen year old African woman. And he really did fall head over heels. And she didn't care a stuff. Or at least she did want him. She wanted to keep him but as a meal ticket. She wanted to die in the favour of a rich man. She'd always been with rich people. She'd been a, previously a, a wife of the previous Kabaka, and she thought Speak would be quite a good substitute. But she was so unromantic that it really sort of cooled his ardour terribly. But he was really upset. He gave her parting gifts and wept a lot and walked about half the night and was in a great state over it. And 
This is a man who was supposed, before I made this discovery, to have been scarcely human, you know, to have had no milk of human kindness, to be a prude, in, in the words of Fawn Brady, and, and prim, and possibly even sexless, whereas, you know, the noble brute Burton, who possibly had sex with men and women, and, and was a, an absolute riot in, when it came to that side of life, it was obviously the more interesting individual, certainly to us today. Little did they know. Now, you mentioned the fact that to the Victorians, the map was blank. Mm. It was white. But tell me a little bit about the societies through which these explorers were traveling, because it's obviously a you know, rich and complex culture, mm, mm, mm. and also the existence of these Arab Swahili mm. slave dealers. So mm. what, what was the sort of nature of the, the society that the explorers were traveling through? Well, one would say that sometimes there would be a king who would be a substantial being. You know, he would have a very large number of wives and followers and would have a court. Speak met two really big kings. There was the king of Buganda, well, three in fact. The king of Buganda, Rumanika was another king, and um, Kamarasi, the king of Bunyore, was another. So, three kings within the latter part of his journey. And these people would have a court, they would have court officers, they would, um, their society would, in some respects, superficially looking anyway at it, be not unlike a feudal society. The chief would have obligations to his senior courtiers and they would have many obligations to him and he would be responsible for allowing people land and 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 as an ultimate judge and arbiter these rather like our own medieval societies were perhaps not over kind at times and all the explorers noted you know that there was plenty of bloodletting but there would have been plenty of bloodletting at the time of the wars of the roses so i don't think we can be too sure of that and in any case what happened in europe in the second world war should teach us a bit of humility but very often they were small societies small extended villages and so forth the arab swahili slave traders formed substantial settlements with their own houses tembes with they were they had verandas and so on and they built these places they planted numerous kinds of vegetables completely unknown to the to the africans and produced really quite um comfortable towns with palm trees and so forth and they had been coastal dwellers and they'd been there yes, since the ninth yes, century that's right they had been coastal dwellers actually for a, for many centuries since the ninth century absolutely um they, what drove them inland was in fact strangely the demand for ivory in europe that suddenly the stuff that came in from african sources was just not enough i think the invention of the upright piano probably made a big difference to this you know the ivory keys but then there were all these things. The Victorians became crazy about hair, hair brushes with ivory backs. And then there were chessmen and billiard balls and Christ knows what else. There were a mass of things made out of ivory. So the terrain the explorers went through wasn't in a state of stasis, in other words. It, there, there, was a, there was a ferment of activity yeah. and yeah. things were changing yeah. in any case. I think so. There was also great African movements. The Zulus were coming up from the south and moving up by the, by the side of... Um, Lake Tanganyika, and other African peoples were on the move too. It was it was a dynamic situation. It was very very tricky for the Africans. But I mean, obviously, the the trouble had started when the Europeans brought firearms to Africa, and when the slave trade was going on. I mean, this this went back, you know, almost to the 16th century. In fact, in the 16th century, the first firearms were brought by the Europeans. 
mainly the Portuguese, but others brought them too. I mean, tons of them, you know, masses of gunpowder and stuff. Mm. So Africa, and, and I mean, they, were, they arrived on the Zambezi. The Portuguese went up the Zambezi as far, almost as the Victoria Falls, obviously not as far, um, or Livingston wouldn't have discovered them, but they brought gunpowder up there in the Tudor period. I mean, it's unbelievable, really, when you think of it, and, and some primitive form of aquabus. And this was, you know, the legacy of this was still there. It's impossible not to be struck and appalled and astonished by the medical tribulations that all the explorers had to endure in an era before penicillin and modern medicine. Give us some sense of just how appalling the medical problems they had were. Well, I suppose, you see, if you had the complications of malaria, like blackwater fever and various things of this kind, you would, um, you would pee blood your kidneys would start to collapse um, with other organs. You would become very weak and anemic and all the rest of it. So after you had endured the nightmare of repeated attacks, which would keep recurring and coming back at intervals, you would then perhaps enter a new phase of the illness that would be so horrible that would literally destroy you inside. And this quite often happened. Jameson, the, the, the chap who made the sketches of the girl being dismembered, which is in the later part of my book, he died in this way, you know, peeing blood and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, but there are so many other illnesses too. There's every form of parasite that can get inside your gut. And if you don't have anything to take for it, you know, it's going to proliferate and multiply there. I mean, the Africans have to cope with this today. And then there's Bill Hartz here, that if you're a man, it can enter your penis, you know, this fluke worm thing, which, you know, you get when you're swimming. And there's elephantasis, which for a man can swell the testicles absolutely grotesquely, so they have to be carried in a sort of sling. And it's just a, a wild multiplicity. There are jiggers that get under your toenails, and although, you know, it's not going to kill you, it's very unpleasant to have to have your toenail taken off, you know, without antiseptics and, and without antibiotics and they're just numerous things that can be very very nasty i mean quite apart from the danger that somebody might kill you either with a bullet and you know i mean mungo park for example was, was murdered with a spear and landers was just shot i mean a lot of explorers ended badly in fact the nile explorers were luckier than most only livingston dying in africa but nevertheless burton having a spear crash through the side of his face so that it completely ripped his palate up and knocked out two principal molars. Apart from that, the great difficulty of travelling. I, I, in the first chapter, I describe Livingstone's attempt to reach the Lualaba River in the rainy season. How he was often up to his neck in rivers, and how what that quite what that means to to tread in a small stream which sometimes goes down to about five feet where an elephant has put its feet. And um, you can suddenly be wandering along, you know, it's about up to your knees, and suddenly you've gone in over your head. And this would often happen. And trees would have been washed away, and you would have to clamber over them. And I mean, the sheer exhaustion of travelling, when, in circumstances like this, that you would really perhaps do better in a canoe, but not quite, because it's still, it is still the land journey, just about. And then... At the end of the day, you want to get some, if, it's, if it is actually still raining, as it may be, you want to try and get in a hut, and you want them to dry your clothes, and to try to start a fire in circumstances where everything's wet. Well, a start, you're going to get an enormous amount of smoke in the hut, 
and yet you've got to get a fire going because you've got to try and dry your clothes. Almost everything you've got is wet. And if you thought that you were going to shoot anything, your gun is absolutely soaked and probably rusting. And the difficulties of keeping your firearms dry and your powder dry and everything else are, are just so enormous that, you know, it's hard for us really before the invention of plastic. I mean, they've obviously got things like um, canvas that are useful, tarpaulins and so on, which, which, which are serviceable and you can tar these things. But we, you haven't got any light garment that would have been so fantastically useful for them. Everything is sort of cumbersome and heavy by comparison. And then everything has to be carried through this. And when the path is very yielding under the feet, the porters slip. And then you're in terrible danger that your, your navigational equipment, particularly your chronometers, which are vital for the establishment of longitude, because you don't know where you are, you won't be able to get back. And if you start putting bits of the map in that don't exist, you're going to get lost badly. And this happened to Livingston. So when a man falls over and drops your chronometers, and they stop and you can't get them started and then you get them started and you've, you're not sure of what the time is anymore. You can't fix where you are accurately anymore. You know, so it's, it's a nightmare. Or somebody steals your medicine case and you lose your quinine, which is your only hope really of surviving malaria. So there's a, just a mass of, of difficulties that it's not just illness, it's also exposure. When Stanley was coming down the Congo, your, your chances also of being drowned were enormously good. You know, three or four of his people were, close people were, were, were drowned, including one of his only white um, helpers. And, you know, he was very lucky not to be drowned. And what about the psychological toll? Is, is that in some way mitigated by their, their sense of self-belief and the culture they come from and their religious belief? Or do you see cracks where, where really the, the psychological pressures of maybe being the only European and perhaps being lost and ill and you know th th surely that must have cost them some pains. I think the really odd thing about them is the way in which so many of them went back again and again. I think that's really the most extraordinary thing because somebody like I mean, Livingston is easier to explain because he believed that he was like a kind of divine tin opener. He's opening Africa for Christian influence and God is favouring him. And even if, you know, he almost dies, God won't let him die. Because while he is alive, he can do his work. And, and so, so God is going to keep him alive. And if God lets him die, then his work is done. So he's in a way in a no-lose situation. It's more complicated for the Speaks and Burtons, I think. And in the end, Burton just didn't have it. He didn't have the kind of instinct of a Stanley who had been so poor, so desperate, so thrown away by both his parents, so neglected, a workhouse boy who'd been really to the bottom and who knew what it was like not to have anything to lose and who had a kind of, oh, I don't know, one would say that it was, it was really a mania for succeeding, for making a name for carving out a reputation, whatever the cost, in terms of personal suffering. And he used to look down on his body almost, you know, this poor suffering body of mine. But I was, he's some soaring thing somewhere else. And he literally can detach himself from it. Whereas Burton was something of a Sybarite, a gentleman, used to wine and decent butcher's meat and 
all this stuff. And he just cracked up. He could not go to the northern end of the lake. He had terrible ulcers on his tongue and could hardly speak. He hadn't felt any sensation in his feet or arms for about a month or two. And when this chief said, you know, I'm not going to take you, I'm going back, he just didn't have the will to overwhelm him and overrule him. I mean, a Livingstone or a Stanley would have done that. And it's a kind of, I think it's where they came from. Livingstone, you see, also was had been a factory boy at the age of eight, crawling under the equipment for maybe 20 miles a day or more in temperatures up to, you know, 100 degrees. So he had, again, had this extraordinarily deprived and awful background. Baker was a very brave man, but with a naturally buoyant and optimistic temperament. You can only sort of really judge him by the way he writes, that he's just one of these people, and we've met them, all of us, you know, who can make the most of things who, when things seem pretty bad to most of us, they will find something good to write about or something that's interesting and intriguing and somehow can cope with the kind of difficulties that most of us would be floored by. And I think it is partly just a kind of, maybe it's a genetic gift or something that, that somebody like him could actually survive. His beloved mistress, who he bought in a, a slave market in Bulgaria, he, he'd been hearing her death rattle for about four or five days. He dug her grave, so convinced was he that she was going to die. And I think if she had died, he would nevertheless have bounced back. I mean, some people just just are like that. And it is a mystery. I mean, I can't tell you why it was that, that a baker was more able to cope than a Burton was. Um, and the Burton said, I've had enough of it, but canoe exploring. <laughs> when Speak said, aren't we going to try and get to the head of the lake? <laughs> He just said it quite honestly. I mean, I sympathise with him in a way. But the others just had this ability to be able to literally, while there was life, force themselves on, that the challenge was everything to them. Let me ask you finally, Tim, you spoke earlier about how there's a tendency to see these men really as the sort of first stage in the process of colonialisation. Do you think the time has come to, to reappraise them and to, to reevaluate them. I think we want to try and see what actually happened. When we look backwards, it's undeniable. These guys went there, and then missionaries went there, and then traders went there, and then colonial officials went there. And um, as various canny Africans said, there was a time when you had the Bible and we had the land, and now we have the Bible and you have the land. And, you know, this is, of course true that there was a progression but the intent of these people wasn't to cause the and you can read what they say about this and you can see exactly how it happened i mean chance i mean the motivation of all the people who went to africa is so different many of the men actually strangely had been jilted by a woman or had, had some kind of disaster they didn't fit in like a speak or a burton speak for example you know he he, he didn't go home he went to explore Tibet or he went to shoot wild animals in Somalia or something. Can you imagine, you know, after years away from his family that he, he wouldn't go home? So there was something there was something really unusual about it. all of the people who, who went there. They went for reasons of their own. And honestly, I don't think a lot of them, they went there to prove something. Africa's a great place for, you know, if you want a, a dramatic backdrop to recreate yourself, to be a new person to start afresh, you know. 
so many of our, our proconsuls as well as our explorers went to Africa hoping to develop themselves, hoping to prove something. And it's, it's really this thing. They didn't go, very many of the earlier ones, hoping to found a colony. That was a later development after these people had broken the back of the continent by making maps of it and telling people what to expect to find. Tim Geel. Explorers of the Nile is available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And do look out for the second part of this October podcast, which is devoted to an interview with Nicholas Rankin, in which he tells me about his new book, Ian Fleming's Commandos. The best way to be sure you never miss another Faber podcast is to sign up for it by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.